welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, where we discuss practical science and not so common sense to live a life more extraordinary. In this episode, we talk about the health dust that you've been sweeping under the rug. We discuss techniques like the tailored chicken and boundary mapping, all the way to assessing how your body is carrying the emotional load so you can truly live a life by design. So let's get started. Here are your co-hosts who are also partners in life and business, Luke and Rachel. Welcome back. Uh, We're here again and I think the biggest challenge has been trying to not necessarily create content or the topics that we're talking about in the podcast, but it's about layering it in the right order. And I know we've talked a lot about this and how it kind of aligns with the mindset, lifestyle, nutrition movement for pillar health philosophy and in that order and how we kind of build upon the previous episode topics. Because at the end of the day, we've talked about sleep being found, you know, foundational and fundamental, but also we've, a lot of our kind of take home messages have been about creating more space to observe, which is really a mindset element. Now, I think the thing we've slightly disagreed with, and that's okay, is that for, for me, suffering from mental health in the past between you know, depression and anxiety, having sleep was fundamental or critical for me to be able to think clearly. But it's kind of a chicken or the egg, because if you're not thinking clearly, or your mind's just racing all the time, it's hard to sleep. And so it's kind of this interesting tension between getting the sleep you need to think clearly and thinking clearly so you know to get to sleep. <laughs> and so today I want to be able to talk to you around the mindset required to make those mid to long-term changes because our kind of slogan at Tailored Health in the clinic is real health is slow health. So getting to, to your tenure in the clinical setting that we've spoken about in the first episode specifically I want to hear more about your perception or challenge around the mindset. So when people come in to see you, Tailored Health and Performance is in the name of the the business, health being the, the foundation, performance being the cherry on top. What has that been like being approached firstly? Um, but second, secondly, the, the mindset that people come to you with and, and the challenges that ensues from that. Yeah, so we have quite a wide ranging client base. So everybody from like the high performance athlete to the business exec, uh, right through to those that are kind of falling through the cracks of the medical system and just looking for answers because nobody's giving them answers and everyone's saying, you're fine, when they know they're not fine. So we, yeah, we have a quite a wide uh, scope of practice and there's definitely some commonalities amongst all of them. And I think the key thing is, comes into the mindset and that's why it's it's first because it's one of my biggest frustration points is trying to get people in the right mindset to take on their health challenges or to untap their potential so a big part of that is you know when you, you see somebody like oh how are you oh busy got no time and it's always that kind of unpacking of that because that busyness or that lack of time is, for the most part of perception, yes, there's the part of where they're saying yes to too many things, but they're often saying they don't have enough time for their health, which to me is just absurd because you know, that's, that's what I'm here to help them with is their health and performance because health underpins everything you do in life. So therefore, we need to help people to kind of take that step back and realize that health is priority. 
without health, you don't have that force multiplier to untap your true potential. And you're just very inefficient at what you're doing. So what I'm always trying to do is get people to shift their priority structure and realize that health is the force multiplier. Mm. And also that it's not a quick fix either. So we talk about real health and slow health. And I think the recurrent thing that I say to clients is it's taking you longer than a month for you to get here. So it's going to take longer than a month to actually unwind all of that behavior or when I turn it to them is how long have you been feeling this way? And they'll be like, oh, 10 years. It's like that's a long time to not feel good. And it's taking you 10 years to get here. Yeah. And, and for the most part, they don't know that they're not feeling good right now because it's been such a gradual decline. They don't know until we turn them around and get them feeling good again that they're like, holy hell, I, like I've got, I've got energy again. I, like, I didn't realize I didn't have energy, but I, ha- I now know the difference. Mm. Well, and, you talked about that in, you, in the very first episode. Yeah. That, you know, you just had no clue you were living a suboptimal life. And for the most part, you've, but you're quite an exception to the majority because you're already interested in health for, for your Elos Danlos um, prognosis and, and what you did throughout the course of your sporting career. You're already kind of like at the sort of the 10 percenter where you're, you're committed to try to show up for yourself to some degree. Granted, you didn't know all the answers. We still don't know, but you know a lot more these days too. And so when, when you reflect upon your journey uh, and, and how you were just really finding the cream of your, your performance and your health, I can't imagine what it's like for other people, like to be sub, sub, sub optimal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a fun place to be. And it's a vicious cycle as well because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, you've got low energy. So you, you resort to sugar to kind of pick you up. Uh, or you try to distract yourself because your brain's not really working. It's very foggy. So you go on social media and then that kind of gets into this dopamine cycle or you, you just sit in front of the television and just kind of lose hours upon hours and you're just kind of living this life by default instead of a life by design. Mm. And it's, to your point, it's a downward spiral. And there was a person I, I heard that the first third of your life, you're young, you've got the, the number of stem cells or, you know, bits and pieces in your body, that the raw chemistry to be able to kind of bounce back and have a lot of forgiveness for bad activities or, you know, things that would otherwise deteriorate your health. So the first third, go have adventures, go, go, you know, go crazy, which is what we usually do. The second third of your life is like, okay, your body is kind of well established. You're along the, the track of, um, that regeneration, degeneration space. So people start finding kind of those little niggles. If they don't listen to the body around that second third, then it only goes downhill on the, the last third. You don't have the forgiveness in the last third. And essentially the last third is where you pay for the second third and the kind of, you know, the ways that you're abusing your health. Uh, and um, there's also a quote that I know in our, in our last sort of story or reel is like, when you're healthy, you're actually or, or in, in a happy place or you're feeling good, you want 10,000 things. Your desires are out there. But when you're unhealthy or, or you're sick, you only want one thing. And that's what we usually see towards the later part of the second third yep. of people's lives, um, which people just try to try to kind of rewind the clock and they try to do it fast. But it's like that conversation around what is the mindset that you have around your goals and your priorities and how you say yes and no to the right things around your health moving forward. 
Because if you think about it at the end of the day, the most valuable asset that we have is time. You know, you could, many people will say money because money provides time. But at the end of the day, if I was to talk to, oh, let's, let's name, um, what's his name? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think he's like eight, late 80s, 90s maybe. Um, you know, he's, he's getting towards the end of his life. If we were to say, exchange all your money for my life or somebody else's life, that is 20, 30, 40, I think he'd do it in a heartbeat. Mm. Like, it is a no-brainer. Like, he would give away all his wealth for that. Yeah, yeah I agree. Like, I know I would. <laughs> yeah. Hands down. Well, this is where you're making those daily investments. So, if you think about superannuation or 401k or other type of retirement investment, is people put little amounts of money away, right? And the the money that you do put away compounds over time. Health is like that kind of little bank account. And you can't, you can't try to put a bunch of money in when you're 60 and hope that actually it's going to mount to something when you're 70. That's not how this works. But I think the key is trying to find out what those basic things are that you're supposed to do to put little amounts in your, in your health bank account. And I know in the last episode, we talked about kind of ways in which you can kind of look at the found, you know, foundational elements and, and key you know, tricks and advice to, um, key tricks and advice to be able to do a little bit each day to, you know, put that money in. But I do want to get into the mindset element because that is the, the thing that's either going to create self mastery or self sabotage. Yep. And without understanding the self sabotage, you can never get self mastery. So I, I think that this is a really cool episode for us to double tap into because it's around getting that that right mindset which takes time and discipline yeah and I think to kind of start that off we kind of have to go back to you know we're all brought into this world given a set of beliefs and constructs you know we don't we don't choose them because naturally our parents pass on their constructs and beliefs that they'll probably pass down from their parents and through their lives and but what that's doing is living a life designed for you, not a life by your design. So, you know, for example, when we're young, we're, you know, our parents often have a religion or uh, beliefs around that, which was often passed on to us as individuals, or maybe it's just the way in which uh, we eat our food and uh, the way we shake hands and make, make eye contact. And it's not until you really leave your little circle uh, whether that is just going to a different island or a different country um, or just even a different town or religion, uh, you quickly begin to see that that's not how everybody else believes it to be or the constructs that they live their lives by. So you, you quickly realize that there is so many choices to be made here. My choices have been made for me and they, they have ingrained into me, but it doesn't mean that has to be mine for the rest of my life. And as an individual, I truly believe we need to create uh, our own guiding principles that set our trajectory for our life where we want to live. Mm. Um, so I know it's been a big part of our journey is really defining what, uh, as individuals and as a life and business partners, what those principles are for us and truly living them and living that life by design. Mm. And I think whether or not you call it principles, core values, essential intent, they all kind of mean the same thing. But the, the key thing is, is that when we're busy or going about our day by default, 
um, basically going with the, with the river, so to speak. Very quickly, if you don't take a pause and say, the choices that I'm making, the things I'm saying yes to, and the busyness that I'm accepting is actually taking me away from being mindful to what those choices are and whether they are in alignment to those values, principles, essential intent. And one key way that we can help people even figure out where, where they're at is to figure out like, what are the choices they're making and what, what does that mean? Like, what are their core principles or the core beliefs or the core values that they're, they're making or, or having by default without even thinking about it? Yeah, and I think when we come into that is it's really taking that step back, taking that first principles approach. And we've talked about observing. I know that and you know, we, at the end of each podcast, we do kind of like each other's take-home message for that podcast. And we've been a little bit in, I wouldn't say disagreement, but there has been a different lens to each other's sort of take-home. And so far it's been, um, for me, it's around foundational thing is get to sleep as mentioned, and for you it's to observe. And we've kind of gone back and forth with that because you've, you've kind of got to observe and, and step back from the, the your life and see the decisions you're making to be able to make better decisions. But the way that we've done that, um, regardless of, of trying to create observation pauses, is through the tailored chicken. Yeah, so the tailored chicken is just, you know, being the detective, being the observer, um, just really taking that step back and trying to look at your life from first principles. Uh, yeah. What are first principles? So first principles, um, you know, taking a step back outside of your beliefs and constructs mm. and actually looking at it from the facts. What are the facts? Yeah. And um, you'll quickly realize that, hmm, those beliefs are not serving me because if I think about it from a logic fact perspective, what I believed is not true. Or it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And if it doesn't make any sense, it's like, why doesn't that make sense? And getting mm. curious and yeah. asking the questions. And I, I really believe people need to take that step back, look at it from first principles, because it changes the way in which you see the world. Mm. And creating the space to do that, I mean, we've talked about meditation and mindfulness and breathing. Because if you're, if you get triggered, right? And then you immediately see red and you're just, you're just focusing in, in front of you. You can't see what's around you. And so this is where we go back into kind of our previous episodes around how do you actually diffuse the trigger, the, response. The trigger response so you can observe. And we often talk about, okay, you've got trigger response. When you're doing something that's either self-sabotage or based on trauma, the trigger response time differential, so the time between the trigger and the response is very tight, very low, because you're acting on impulse, this is an emotional response, and very quickly you can identify that that's happening when it's like after the fact you think, wow, why did I get so angry so quickly when that happened? So all we're trying to do with these last few episodes is to try to put a basically a spacer in there. How do we how do we tease that gap out further? So between the trigger and the response is actually a moment to observe. Because again, for a lot of people, when they haven't been doing this, it can be extremely challenging to really, because their beliefs and constructs are just so strong. You know, it's really easy to become dogmatic. So, you know, really strong on your opinions and not being pragmatic, being open to other um, ways of thinking. Yeah. So one really powerful way that I try to at least... I guess tweeze out the, the gap between trigger response 
is to do morning pages. So if you're interested in learning more, feel free to, you know, our listeners can, can Google or you, you know, use search engine to, to search up morning pages. But long story short, I learned this from Tim Ferriss. There's, it's, there's been other people that have been attributed to this. So I know, I know Tim's very happy to give credit where credit is due, but morning pages is essentially a way in the morning to do a running commentary of what's going on in your mind. And for me, I've got a big, a big sort of A4 folio that I use. And, and my goal is to fill that entire first page up at minimum. Uh, the sort of the credence of, of doing this morning pages officially, I think is to do three full pages. But for me, one is how I've, I've kind of managed time. But long story short, it helps me create uh, a more objectivity on what's going through the, my mind, whether that be a fear about what's happening or what's coming up, whether it's a concern that I have around specific attributes to my life, whether it be, you know, being a mother or being a friend or being, you know, a, a business partner or a partner or a relationship, whatever it might be, it provides that running commentary of what's on top of my mind. And then I can actually more objectively see what's happening, what the, the narration is going on in my head, because it's literally a running commentary of what's happening. And so that's been a really powerful mechanism for me to even go back a couple of days later and kind of highlight or make notes around, okay, what is the logic that this will happen? Or what is the likelihood that this will happen? Um, or, okay, I understand that was where I'm at now. I can see progress to the, you know, where my brain is at or how I'm considering and conceptualizing this problem. And so it's kind of like um, a diary you don't necessarily keep to go back and kind of rep- reminisce. It's more around you being able to objectify objectify the, the narrative that can be either, again, self-sabotaging, um, so I can create self-mastery in, in those concepts. Yeah, and so essentially there's a stream of consciousness and to kind of bring it to another thing that Tim Ferriss has popularized uh, is fear setting. So you talked about in that is the kind of identifying of those fears and trying to be objective about it and what you can do on, you know, you get your morning pages as a daily thing, but then from like a quarterly, six monthly or even yearly basis, it's reflecting upon those fears, those reoccurring fears that keep coming up and actually running the scenarios. Is this going to be as bad as I think it is? What is the absolute worst case scenario? Writing that down and then you know, reflecting upon that, bringing some logic to it. Okay, if that happens, what will I do? And you'll quickly realize that, firstly, the possibility of it happening is very low. And if it does happen, it's actually not as bad as you think it is. We catastrophize in our head. Our head just starts to spiral. But we need to get these things out of our head onto paper so we can actually see it from that first principles approach. Mm. And we've modified um, one of our sort of executive program exercises or protocols that we call catching the fireflies, which we've sort of alluded to in previous episodes, but it's around getting your roles, the hats that you wear onto paper in the world of Luke or the world of Rachel and, and kind of getting a feel for all right, what is the demand on my time and how do I navigate this in a more again, objective way, or start to prioritize the thing that's a really matter, or the or the three Ds, do, do, defer, delegate. And so I think the worst thing that can happen is to, to live in our brain while it's crunching these ideas or fears to sawdust and actually get it out of ourselves, or at least reconnect with ourselves and, and be observant of what these thoughts are doing to our body, which I think leads us to this idea of how we're checking in, how we're connecting our brains to our body again, uh, which is around even just as simple as this book that we've got that we used to read to our kids, and it's called In My Heart. Do you remember that book? 
Yep, yep. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what it was about? Uh, it's about outlining the emotions so they can help identify uh, what emotion they're feeling. Because mm. too often when you're young, you're, you're still trying to feel what things are because everything's new at that point in time. You know, there's like powerful emotions that they, especially when they're going through puberty, like they just don't know what's going on. And it's trying to help them connect. Okay, so that um, is associated with this feeling. So helping build a construct, I guess, for them so yeah. they uh, can help better understand their biochemistry and what it's doing to them and getting them curious about that. And also giving them language. Yeah, language I think yeah. what's been really beautiful, particularly with our daughter, is that she tends to run away from emotions. We've noticed this for a number of years. Um, and it's been beautiful to see that change as we've been coaching her and guiding her through some of these principles. And I just want to take like put some emphasis on this. And we literally mean running away. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be sitting at the table, uh, having a conversation, and then she'll literally find a reason or just generally just walk or run away. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's been fascinating to, you know, giving her space and then her bringing, bringing her back to the, you know, the table, the chair and saying, hey, I just want to talk to you about something. I noticed when we were talking about this topic and it would be usually some emotional topic mm. that, you know, whether or not she's having a hard time with her friends at school or, uh, you know, that time where she accidentally left the, the farming rake out and her brother ended up stepping on it and getting like three puncture wounds in his, in his foot. That was a traumatic morning. <laughs> but it's like as soon as she, you know, started to feel some degree of guilt or, or frustration or sadness, she would, she would literally run away. And so bringing her back and saying, I noticed that when we're talking about those big feelings, like that, you know, we've, we've talked about in the, in my heart book, I see your body wanting to move away and to have her say, I just don't want to feel it. Mm. I don't want to be in that moment. I don't want to go back there. And so that's been beautiful to be able to say, okay, well, I'm here and you're safe. Can you tell me more about that feeling and where you feel it? What color is it? What shape is it? Is it prickly? Is it smooth? Does it change color? Does it move? Um, how does it make you feel like in your head compared to in your body? And so it's been really beautiful to be able to, to talk her through that, which is I've, I've seen huge changes in her EQ mm. and then also self identification of like how she's feeling because we work with her on, on these, you know, reconnection exercises. Yeah. So EQ, emotional intelligence. So, um, and I think the kind of key thing here is the repression of emotions is what is causing a lot of the problems later on in life. And we, we don't know we're dealing with them because it's just these little micro traumas that are just continually built into us from such a young age. And if not addressed initially, like they just, they build up and they create these patterns and constructs and really hard in adult, adulthood to kind of unbreak because, mm. you know, something would happen. And you wouldn't know why you're kind of responding or triggering, being triggered by um, something, but it's most likely something's happened in your childhood or young adulthood or some kind of micro trauma that is still there that hasn't been dealt with. So it's really important that we create the language and deal with these emotions as soon as possible. Yes, create a bit of space for them, allow them to individually work through it and understand it and be able to create language to it. Um, but being there when they're in a space and ready to talk when they've calmed down and um, yeah, I think it's just, mm. it's just so important to bring language to these um, tra micro traumas. And also to, uh, we're on the language point. Um, 
There's a wonderful methodology of counseling, which, you know, I just I love because it, it it's exactly what I've been doing is that um, in those little micro trauma, there's a part of you. If you think about your whole body, your whole who you are, everything is like a jigsaw puzzle, right? It's got all these pieces that kind of lock into place. Now, how firmly locked they are in this kind of glue, this tapestry of your life um, will depend on, again, how triggering or how much that groove has been exacerbated or glued together over time. Um, but what I've loved about the the the, uh, the way that this particular uh, methodology works is that it talks about you as, as a part. So if you have a part of you that always gets triggered when some when some t- particular topic comes up or you see something on the news or your spouse says something or your child says something and you're like trigger response, oh there's something very emotional there. There's a part of you that still lives in that place. And that part is simply trying to protect you from reliving that trauma. And so there is a there is a guttural response to it because that has not been resolved. That part of you still lives there. It hasn't actually had time to talk, to air the situation, to you know, give itself language around why it still lives there and why it gives you that sort of trauma set. Um, and so yeah, I'm it's it's great to give these this language to kids that are as young as ours. So hopefully they can be a little bit more aware and um, well adjusted as young teens and then adults. And it's just as important for us as well, like when we're addressing our own uh, micro traumas or, yeah, and just so for those that want to kind of delve more into that, that's IFS, Internal Family Systems by Dick Schwartz. Um, It's just a really powerful methodology for really unpacking traumas and, yeah, really freeing you up and allowing you to, you know, live a more purposeful life because, you know, you can't live that purposeful life if you're continually being pulled back and triggered and mm. um, it just really helps create that space. And I think there's two really good podcasts that uh, were just, he actually in real time took the, yeah. I think it was Tim and Aubrey. Yeah, so Tim and Aubrey Marcus, uh, so Tim Ferriss and Aubrey Marcus, he's uh, run them, done a podcast with them and kind of run them through the process. In real time, in which real was time, crazy. Yeah. And there's been a few others as well um, that I've heard, um, but they're the other two that I thought were really well um, done. Yeah, yeah, and I think we should just add those to the show notes for people yeah. who are interested in learning more about that. But um, such a powerful methodology to to try to address trauma in a really kind, gentle way. And so I guess this leads us into... Uh, when we're talking to people in clinic around where they come to us, as articulated, you know, they, they're wanting to feel better, but we need to kind of take them back to first principles and how they're feeling and reconnecting the three brains, which we've spoken about in previous episodes. But uh, essentially, for those who are first-time listeners, the three brains, we've got our main brain in the head, we've got a collection of ganglia that sit around the heart and then also within the, the gut area. And so, there's a actually scientific evidence that's suggesting that your gut instinct and when you feel what does your heart say, there's absolute evidence that says that there are brain-based thinking elements in those two areas that actually talk to the upper, um, you know, the, the head brain that provide a 360 degree view of, of you know, decision making or, or thought processes. But for the most part, our busyness and the, the default mechanisms that we live by each day disconnects us from those two other brains. And we often live in this high emotional set with some cognitive logical thinking that goes alongside where as a part of one of our protocols, it's reconnecting the three brains. Yep. Yep. 
And so in the reconnecting of the three brains, what we get people to do is to be more observant. So as much as people probably think it's woo-woo or it's like, this is all I'm doing this week, it's so critical. And looking back, a lot of our clients are like, I'm so glad you got us to do that because without realizing that there was so much that I did by default. So it's it's taking that first principles back and observing the decisions that people are making uh, and observing when there's an emotional element to it too. Did you want to articulate more about that? Yeah, so simply put, our perception shapes our reality and reality is really ingrained by emotion. So that, yeah, that's literally when we take that step back to, you know, observe and be that detective and where we use our tailored check-in to get curious around what is going on. And I know you've got the form right in front of you right now. Yeah, so outside of what we've done with, for example, our kids, there's a slightly different way of looking at it. And it's probably more um, a light touch, I suppose, of how you're feeling. I like to dig more deeply into this myself when I'm working with one-on-ones, but the tailored check-in, we'll put it in the show notes, it's a, it's a worksheet, and there's three steps. The first is right now, I am, and then we've got some options to tick. So in here, I mean, you, you could have happy or whatever it might be, but I've got tired, anxious, sad, hurt, stressed, angry, and then kind of a wild card that you can put in yourself. And so the first step is, how am I recognizing this feeling? What do I recognize it as? What is this emotion that I'm experiencing? You could go deeper, which again isn't in this, but I like to go deeper is, as I mentioned, where is it in my body? What color is it? Is it spiky? Is it smooth? Um, does the color change? Is it fluxing or is it very specific in one part of your body? And again, just get familiar with that feeling. If I'm sad, where do I feel sadness? And this is where you know, the, the book that we used to read to, to our, our daughter really gets into, okay, what, what is that feeling? And we'll put the book in the show notes. There are plenty of great books out there for kids these days. But so the first is right now I am. So identifying how you're feeling. The second step is this is how my body is reacting. So again, I've got a wild card here. Um, my head hurts. My throat feels tight. My heart is racing. My heart hurts. My belly aches. My body feels tense. I want to run away. I don't want to be around people or something else. So again, all we he- all we're doing is trying to recognize the, I guess, the classic symptomology around how your body's actually responding to this. And then the third one is to recognize what you inherently want to do with that. So the third one is when I feel this way, I tend to. And the options here are lash out, eat food, drink alcohol, do drugs, pull away, seek affection, seek quiet time, talk to a loved one or something else. So all this is trying to do is just create a, um, a gentle mechanism to find reflection. This is particularly true, for example, if you have a fight with your spouse or with a child, like we always recommend, like if you're in a really heated moment, whether it be midstream or at the end of the argument, try to find that space. You can say to yourself, like, I'm, I'm really fired up about this and I don't want to make it worse. I just need some space to reflect upon what's going on. That's an ideal outcome, you know, that we actually get people to that point to be able to articulate with their spouse that something is wrong, something's triggered. I need to better understand where I'm coming from. And then they go away in a quiet place and check in, use this check in worksheet. And from there, you start to recognize 
repeatability. So it's like, ah, okay, when my spouse does this, this is what it makes me consistently feel. This is how my body responds. This is what I want to do. And then the fourth activity, which we add on as people get better at the check-in is what can I do instead? And that can create powerful what ifs or if then, which can start to create different grooves. We've talked about, you know, when we, when you go snowboarding or skiing, you can see the tracks down the snow that naturally, if you let yourself fall, it would just follow the track, the same groove, the same patterning. And so all we're trying to do is disrupt the pattern. Yep, and we're trying to find that past least traveled because what we're trying to do is neurons that fire together are wired together. So we're trying to rewire that brain so it functions in a different way, a healthier way, um, instead of into the triggering trauma-based default pattern. Default pattern. Yeah, the default pattern. So I guess that the next step is putting this into practice. And I would love to see an example from your response to a trigger or um a trauma that you've had to overcome and deal with and create that space and be that observer. So could you share a, a real life example for you? Yeah. So I, I think uh, one thing that has been quite insidious in my life and a lot of people, particularly women would uh, associate with is gaslighting. So I spoke about it a fair amount in the Unmasked Executive series on LinkedIn. Uh, for those who don't know what that is, feel free to find me on LinkedIn and have a look at that Unmasked Executive series. It's an unfinished series. There's another chapter coming, but uh, that one's quite a difficult chapter. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to write that. But either way, very quickly, you, you learn about what I call the reality distortion field. And a reality distortion field um, I felt was a propagation, particularly in the startup scene, but it could be in a relationship as well. And so the fundamental nature of a reality distortion field is being having gaslighting situation and where you are, you are taught, told, inferred that your feelings that you are experiencing are not true. And so being invalidated, essentially invalidated. Yeah. Yeah. And so the interesting part of the last two years has been actually trying to unwind the, the sense of gaslighting in both my previous marriage and my workplaces, which has historically been in the startup scene. Um, one particular, but also another corporate role I had immediately before joining you is that when, when you feel something is wrong, or there's a clear elephant in the room, uh, whether related to uh, a disconnection as a partnership or product, like how the product is actually being developed or its readiness. And you're told either one-on-one over time, but also publicly that you're wrong. Even though all logic, all signs point to you being right, And if you get this over time that you're told you're wrong, those feelings aren't correct, you stop trusting yourself. You stop believing that what you're feeling is true or real, and it creates this reality distortion field around who you are, how you're feeling, whether your feelings are justified. And then you completely lose sight of your identity, because if you're completely disregarding your feelings, if you're playing in the space where you're basically emotionally lobotomized, saying that what you what you sense is not true, then you start being in this highly like logical space that you're turned off and cut off from your emotions because no matter how much you feel them, 
they're not being held in a place that allows them to breathe, to be discussed, to be heard, to be worked through. And so effectively, it's like the complete antithesis of the tailored chicken. Okay, so with that antithesis, let's take that step back and kind of that trigger, right? So that trigger for you is being disconnected from emotion, feeling invalidated, and yeah, just confusion around that reality distortion field. So how would you feel? So I think the first key indicator that I'm I'm coming from that trauma place is that when I literally feel like I'm swallowing myself. Mm. So it's an interesting experience when I still have doubts. It's, you know, th- I've been working through this for three years after 12 years, if not even longer, of being told that my feelings aren't valid. And so I'm, st- I'm three years in. And so the interesting part that I experience, even with our conversations, which, uh, you know, when, when emotion comes out, the emotions aren't logical. And so in your logic brain, where you're feeling like, very objective and then I'm in a place of being triggered and very emotional which does not mean that those things aren't true either sometimes you know we have these situations in which I'll feel a certain way I'll trigger in a certain way and get really emotional for you you're super confused because you're like this makes no sense whatsoever and then I'll share how I'm feeling and then you might say well that makes no sense because of this and I either have to remind you or I find that you kind of switch and it's like ah I get you're the, that you're feeling this way. I can understand why you feel this way. Yeah, and that, that's been a learning as we've come to learn each other's triggers and traumas. And yeah, I've, I've learned through working with you to identify what is the best course for you. And it is literally taking that step back, giving you that space and acknowledging that this is emotion. It's not logical, although it's very hurtful for me right now and somebody else's created this trauma for you which puts it on me because that's essentially what it um it is right like you're seeing that lens on me um how they behaved even though i'm not acting that way but it's just kind of created that association it's a hard thing to to swallow but at that time it's so important that i do swallow it so you can actually deal with that emotion so what i have learned works for you and this doesn't necessarily work for everybody but i know this works for you is creating that space so you can become that observer and actually identify that in reflection, I actually didn't do anything wrong. This is patterning that has happened from a previous relationship and I'm putting that on to the situation, which is not true. But to kind of, if I was to go straight into logic, I would be invalidating you further. I would be inflaming the situation. Inflaming the situation because it's going to do everything to exacerbate the situation because you're invalidated. You're, you don't feel like your emotions are being heard. So what I've learned in that situation is extremely critical to give you that space and not talk about the logic as clear as day it is to me to kind of just outline and how much I intentionally just want to go straight into that um, because I love to kind of reframe things into a positive perspective because that's what works for me, but that's not what works for you. Mm. So I create that space and when you're ready, you generally will come to me and we'll have a open, honest conversation and then you're in a space in which... You, you're ready to hear the logic, um, but I make sure you're ready for that first and foremost. Mm. And by just doing a few kind of, how are you feeling? You know, where are you at? And oftentimes you would have taken that time away, observed the situation, kind of gone through the tailored check-in. And generally speaking, we'll apologize for the way in which you responded and behaved because you've realized that 
it wasn't me. It was the trauma that was being brought up. Mm, yeah. And I, what I add here that I don't know whether or not me removing myself from the situation and then that's just something that I've observed that, that I need to get that space to get, you know, get out, um, away from the kind of heated environment. So I can reflect and sit in that, in that, uh, observation space. But when I do come back, I, or if I'm taking a while, I love how you come even into my space and just give me a hug. Because in that little hug, that tells me I'm safe. Because there's actually a safety, big safety trauma element for me, which we can get to in another time, but trust and safety are quite intertwined for me. And so to know that you're here for me, that in that moment you can actually come find me. We don't have to talk at that point in time. All you're doing is giving me a hug so I feel safe and protected and, and held. That, that is enormous for, for trying to get myself to kind of get into a place of calm and and observation. But I don't want to walk, walk through the tail chicken when it comes to this. Just before you do that, I think for those partners that are trying to be there to support, I think it's important that they understand that it is not easy. Like, I want to kind of be clear about this, that I'm no anomaly, this is not easy to do. Um, and especially when you need space. When you need space, that really hurts. And it's okay to hurt, but you'll get your chance to be heard. You just need to give them that space. And then when it's time where you may just check on them or like you mentioned, or they come back to you, you will get a chance to be heard and you will be, generally speaking, you know, realize it wasn't you that did it. And you just need to accept that that's their work that they need to do. Um, but it's not easy. Yeah. And that does not preclude the fact that maybe you did something wrong. Oh, absolutely. Like, so yeah. at the end of the day. And then that, I will apologize too. Yeah. And so once you get that new lens of how it was received, because again, you're not infallible, mm -hmm. just like I'm not. Um, it's like, oh, okay, I see it from a different lens now. I totally see how that would have been a problem. I didn't mean to come across like that. And a good, a good example of that is language for you is so important, which I've learned over the time, right? Uh, where for me, you know, like I don't, often put so much critical thought into the the words and language in which I use and oftentimes I can say a word that triggers you because it's not quite quite the right word in context um, <laughs> but I don't think anything of it I'm just like oh yeah it's just just language right but for you it's like whoa <laughs> yeah. what, what did you just yeah. say and yeah. I'm like, I, I didn't mean it that way <laughs> I think that that's common for amongst many men um, so it's something I've had to learn and be a bit more conscious with the language in which I use. It's just another example of how I will put my foot in it and trigger a response that I had no clue I was trying to trigger, um, but it's something I had had to be really good at challenging yeah. and changing. And this is where we learn about new language and how to explain. So mm -hmm. having a partnership or you know even a close family member do something like this with you is so key because then you can actually exercise the new ways of learning, the new ways of of, you know, actually imbuing this, this interest in growth and equally being really honest and saying, look, I'm learning here. I'm going to screw up. And I'm so sorry for those moments I screw up, but I need a safe place to screw up with you. Uh, and likewise. So, I mean, the, it's such an interesting dynamic, um, which we're not taught at all. And usually the modeling from our parents is far from ideal. 
And so this is where this whole, like this concept of intergenerational virus that is passed on by generation by generation by generation, because those are the behaviors and the habits were modeled by each of our successive parents. And so that that's a part of actually creating a break in that virus and saying, actually, this is not serving me in my relationship. Um, and, and the thing that woke me up to that is when I realized I married my dad in my pre- previous relationship. And again, there's nothing like no detriment to my dad or my mom. Like they are incredible individuals. So do not get me wrong, but I can see patterning that was acceptable in that relationship, which I've never thought was healthy at all that I, I realized I was doing as a natural byproduct of that virus being transferred into the old relationship of mine that I actually said was not okay. Like I will, I will not accept this in my life. I will not accept this, this marriage as it is. And as much time as I gave that person to change and us to grow together, it just did not happen. And so that was a choice I made. Yeah. And that's coming into kind of the next step beyond the tailored check and looking at the boundaries that are kind of what, what can we do to, you know, make sure this doesn't happen, right? Mm. So let's take a step back and go to the Taylor Chicken, as we yes. mentioned, because we keep going on to other topics. <laughs> we but, do. Um, right. So in the gaslighting trigger situation, um, so for me, when, when I, if we get into a heated discussion or argument, um, I will, I, and maybe I should be better at articulating, like, I need some space. I think I usually say I need some space. And I also want to be clear here as well. We may get to a heated discussion, but it never gets to a point of yelling. No, I don't think agreed. we've ever have a, had a yelling argument that I can think of. Um, because if you get to a point of yelling, there's a communication breakdown. So I think this is a really important thing to observe with your partner. If you're having yelling arguments, there's a communication breakdown. And you really need to bring something like this into your relationship. Yeah, and um, well forward towards, you know, before yeah. the yelling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yelling means you've already, it's already broken yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the situations where I'm pretty sure I do say, like, I just need some space. Is that you true? Do, you do. Yeah, cool. Because I know I, I think it, but whether or not I'm like, I need some space right yeah. now. Uh, and the classic example was the other day when I was like, I just need to get out of you know, the house or this, you know, the situation and go for a walk. Um, and so I, I will do the sort of this tailored check-in. And so... Because I don't trust my emotions still, again, I'm still working through what am I actually feeling right now? It sometimes takes me a while to figure out what am I actually feeling? So for me, the number one is right now I am. And so I have to try to define a feeling. Okay. But usually for me, it starts with colors and wear. So oftentimes when I'm feeling like I've been, you know, gaslit or I'm not being heard, I feel it in my throat. It's a very much a throat thing. So I, over time, I've recognized that when I feel it in certain parts of my body, it actually helps me figure out where I'm, what I'm actually feeling. Because sometimes I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm angry. Usually I'm angry. I'm oftentimes confused because I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know where it is in those moments, in those heated moments. And so to be able to take myself back and say, okay, right now I am. God, I don't know what I am, but where am I feeling it? Okay. I'm feeling it in my throat. It's kind of upper, upper heart throat area and it feels it feels gray and constrictive so in that situation I'm like it's a darker color so this is a this is a it's a clearly a negative color it's a sadness it's a dark place it's feeling lonely and it's in my heart because I'm not in a place of feeling like my heart is in a safe place and it's in my throat and it's constricting my throat because I feel like I'm not being heard. There's something in there that's just like, I, I can't articulate what's going on. And so I start to identify that feeling where I'm like, okay, 
I'm feeling angry at myself because that still upsets me. So sometimes I like, I get to that really quickly. I'm like, okay, I'm angry at myself because that trigger still upsets me even after years of that situation happening. And so I'm even, I'm getting like emotional thinking about it. And so the interesting part of this is to revisit that part that feels so alone. <laughs> Here we go again. Um, and it's not hard to find those places. Like when you, when you, when you have the trauma, it doesn't take long to sit in it. And so when you start to feel that like trickling in the back of your eyes and you're like, oh my God, I'm here again. That's when you know you've got the good stuff because it's still sitting there. It still hurts. And that's, that's what you need to find. Like if you can't, you've got to find space and safety. I don't know who's listening to this podcast, but it might just be 10 people, but if the 10, if maybe eight, maybe five people like get from this, that actually it's okay to feel stuff and to identify and sit in it and be okay and, and accept it because it's not until you actually look at your coping mechanisms and ask why that you understand what the problem is. Because a coping mechanism is just on the surface, like whether you're angry or you know, you try to take yourself away and keep yourself busy and forget and swallow all the stuff until or go you... to food or alcohol. Exactly. Like, the classic thing for me to do in, in a normal circumstance is like, I feel this way, I'm frustrated, I'm upset, I'm going to go to alcohol. Or I'm going to go grab some chips or something to make me feel comfort. But the point being is this is a coping mechanism. Until you can get underneath the coping mechanism you're always going to repeat the same behavior about what you feel like doing when you feel this way. Okay, so now I've composed myself again. Good. I've, I, I've identified where the feeling is. I have identified what's coming up for me. And then this is how my body is reacting. So I get a feel for where it is. So what's going on? And then when I feel this way, I tend to, this is where we're getting to, alcohol. We're getting to food. We're getting to yelling. We're getting to you know, any other kind of vice that you would normally go to automatically to create a coping mechanism for the emotion. And because I've, I've had time to kind of unpack this and create a safe place to feel it is that when I feel this way, I will, I will often firstly pull away, which again, I'm using that to create space, which is I'm, I'm redirecting a pull away, a coping mechanism to be able to find space to think. So while that's a default mechanism that I automatically do, I pull away, it, that particular mechanism helps me figure out and create the space. But equally, um, you can create new things that you do. So, okay, so when I feel this way, I normally do this. But to create space to, like, create a safe uh, processing of, of that emotion, you might say, okay, I'm going to start doing this instead and see if it actually helps me feel better. I mean, it's okay to experiment like, okay, what, what is an adult thing to do here? How can I create that kind of safe environment for me to process the emotions? And so this is, this is basic like self-control psychology one on 101, which none of us, to be quite frank, are ever taught. But it's so powerful to be able to reconnect our brain, our top brain, our, our head brain with the other parts of our brain, which are knowing and have wisdom 
and can help us kind of get out of these cycles that we create. And I think the key thing to remember is this is a working document. This is not always the same response. So it's important to kind of go through the process and in particular for you and your journey, like how you respond now is so different to what you would have done in your previous relationship because I know back then there was a lot of repression. There was never anyone shut down. To, never anyone shut to down. work through with, you know. So you would often really suppress it not show any emotion um, and you would, you know, fall into other mechanisms to kind of help you cope with that. Work, distraction, yeah, exactly. anything to distract myself. Yeah. And um, then that, that's so erosive to, for me, and I'm sure we'll get into it one day, my, my sexual appetite. Like if I don't feel hurt, if I'm not in a place where I'm safe, I will, I'll have zero sex drive. And I have zero interest in the partner because it's like I don't feel safe. I'm not in a place that I feel accepted and loved. Yeah, and it makes absolute sense. But I, and on top of that, as you said, you know, work as well, which I know was a big thing that we've unraveled. And we talked about this in previous podcasts as well, as you were distracting yourself with work and driving yourself into the ground because you were just so unhappy. And it's important to understand that work is an addiction, just like alcohol, just like food. All these things are vices to help us deal with our emotions. So if you're having anything that you're relying on to or distracting yourself from, whether it may even be, you know, like distractions through social media, technology, you know, TV, whatever it is, trying to figure out, okay, this that's not healthy. So how can I, and this is what leads into the, the next thing, right? Is like, how can I change my behavior? How, how can I, you know, create that space and make sure I don't fall into this place again? And if I do fall into this place again, how do I respond? And uh, I know you've come up with some really great mechanisms around that. So obviously, firstly, we've talked about is finding that space. That's the first thing you do. But what else do you do? Because I know you do more. Yeah. So I, I think as a part of uh, the learning to trust myself again is to understand my own boundaries. So uh, a technique that I found so powerful is you get an A4 piece of paper and you draw a big circle in the middle. And in the inner circle, you say what I accept in my life. And in the outer area, you say what I do not accept in my life. In the case of being gaslit and my experiences prior is that I'd, you know, think about a scenario or, um, you know, how I was feeling at the time. And I'd write in there what I want to accept in my life. I want to accept I am a positive contributor, that I am, I do amazing work, that I am a compassionate person, um, that I'm treated fairly, that I'm treated in a way that, you know, I deserve. Um, so you, in the inner circle, it's like, this is how I want to feel. This is what I, what I, what I want in my life in the way that, you know, this is my life by design. And then in the outer, outside of the circle, you say what you don't want in your life. So I don't want to be told I'm always wrong. I don't want my emotions to always feel like they're not valid. I don't want to be yelled at in a meeting for raising a problem. I don't want to feel like a sex object. You know, and so you actually, you create this, which is quite confronting. Like it's the whole process of untangling all this stuff is incredibly confronting and it's not comfortable. So I know we're going to talk about the comfort crisis, but to be able to unwind all this trauma, all this, all this sort of damage, this baggage, this trauma response thing, you've, you've got to be okay with kind of digging under, looking under the hood, seeing what's going on. And so the, the boundary map is very confronting in the fact that very quickly you realize 
you're accepting a whole bunch that you're actually not okay with. And oftentimes we, we just don't realize it. And it's really, this will often take time for people to unpack because they, they need to go through this um, process of the tailored chicken multiple times till they start to see the patterning that occurs and the response and then the curiosity that's associated in the follow-up from that. It's like, why? Why? And then the boundary map starts to get created because I know for you that did not come the first time, right? Like it was a build upon. And same as when we work with clients, but obviously when we're working with clients, we can probe the question, we can probe the questions to really get there a lot quicker. But for those that are just doing it in their own time and just being their own detectives and getting curious, it will take time and you will just need to go through this process of checking in uh, multiple times and multiple triggering scenarios mm. and then asking that question why and getting super curious and then that will develop this boundary um, map. As we go. And we do this also, and another really confronting way of doing this is to stand in front of a mirror naked <laughs> and do this, do this map because it's like, okay, it's not okay that I talk to myself like this. It's not okay that I call myself fat and ugly. It's like, that, that's not actually not okay. I don't want this in my life. And so that's another like layer up to the confronting because, and I don't do that with many people until they're really ready because that can, especially for women who have body dysmorphia, um, if it's that extreme, not, not a good idea doing it early on, but it's like, that's where you get a feel for, okay, this is the narrative that I'm actually talking to myself about. And it gives you a chance to say, that's actually not okay. I'm not, I'm not okay with that kind of practice anymore in my life and that's not a life by design that is the current default mechanism that I've been surviving on and is a coping mechanism or a self-sabotage mechanism that isn't serving me and I don't want for the rest of my life yeah and I think this is where we take the next step into your perception creates your reality so whether your perception is true or not it's just creating a reality yeah. so whether you think you're ugly fat uh, bad skin, stupid, stupid, um, yeah, whatever it may be, you're, that's your self-fulfilling prophecy mm. because if you believe that to be true, that will become your reality. And even more so ingrained if you associate that with the emotion. So if you can link any kind of feeling with emotion, that is just so deeply built into your system because it creates these neural pathways that just kind of wiring mm. and this creates that deep chasm of a river or a snow um, path. Mm, yeah. of, um, so and ex extremely toxic. And the way in which people talk to themselves, like the question I love to ask is would you, the way you talk to yourself, so would you talk to our daughter the way you talk to yourself? Just imagine that. Yeah. Like, and we would for, never do that. And for anyone, just imagine a loved one and saying the same words you say to yourself, mm. putting that on somebody else, how hurtful would that be? Mm. That's beyond bullying. Like that is the cruelest thing because we all have these very critical internal narratives which are extremely toxic. And just imagine if you were actually mm. in that place saying those same things to somebody you love. Mm. So this is why I care so much about language mm. because if you actually unpack the language Language itself is so powerful. So usually in the boundary exercise, I encourage people to write down the exact language. Don't like try to make it sugarcoated or make it articulate. No, 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 no. Use the exact words. In your narrative. In your narrative. Because the, the, the fact that you might be using specific word actually has a lot of insight into the way and how 
like I guess the spectrum of of power that that thing has to you and um, like the child thing what I often do is you know depending on if the, the mother is still alive and what relationship they've got with their mother is I do a, a kind of like a man, not a manifesting but a visualization exercise where you're you're imagine you're sitting in front of a mirror and you're, you're using the language you usually do with yourself imagine your mum comes up to you and she's in a loving place. You know, she's behind you. She's looking, looking at you in, in, in a loving way. And imagine she hears what you say to yourself. What would she do? What would she tell you? So again, it's kind of a slightly, you know, generation up versus generation down. But either way, it's so powerful to think, okay, is this what a loving person says to themselves? Mm. Yeah. And <laughs> you'll quickly observe that we are our own worst enemies. And if we really want to be better, we need to shift that narrative because much like it can be negative, it can be positive. So we're focusing on the negative side of it right now, but this is a sh- extremely powerful, if not the most powerful thing you can take away is by shifting that internal narrative to a positive narrative and then enabling that with a higher emotion, emotional state just ingrains these positive patterns into place and will just unwire all this negative patterning that we've had. So there is so much to be said for shifting that narrative and getting into a positive place. And, you know, I know with you, there's been a lot of unraveling that body dysmorphia and helping you realize that you're actually beautiful. And I'm sure everyone that watches this will see how beautiful you are, but they won't know that you have a lot of body dysmorphia and you don't believe... Um, you don't believe your skin's healthy, you don't believe you look good. There's so much that you have bottled up and created this language and you you truly believe it. Like you'll see photos and you'll see all these flaws that I do not see and I don't, well, I, I have roast into glasses most likely, but <laughs> I don't think anyone else sees them either. And we know other people don't see what you see for the most part when we've asked. And... It's just, it's fascinating to kind of see how we see ourselves and how we, how that kind of facilitates into our life and how much power that has over us because, you know, that limits you to what you'll wear, to where you'll go, to, you know. The confidence you have in a job interview. Yeah, having to wear makeup to kind of mask yourself and like there's a whole cascading of things that, you know, just lead to. Yeah, just like masking of um, mm. trauma, which you're not being your true self and living your fullest potential. And this is where reflecting upon the the chapters of your life, like in, in the, the second episode where we sort of unpacked my history, is that you know being a competitive gymnast where you are literally scored out of 10, yeah. that you know your whole identity comes at how close to perfection can I get, but more importantly, how much am I not perfect? Yeah. Like... And, and of course, with any sport that's got a score to it, whether it's diving or equestrian riding, like show jumping, whatever it is, right, where there's a score, which mostly there is, but when it's an individual sport and you're scored on that level of perfection and you do it at, you know, either start at a really young age, do it for a really, really long time, do it at a really high level, like representing your country, that it, the odds or the the... The, the desire to be as perfect as possible or to reduce your flaws as much as possible is real. And then also with gymnastics in particular is the weight restriction, which we've talked about as well in your episode, in episode two, about how 
the steadiest you need to be around your weight and how you need to, you know, be a certain weight and look a certain way and uh, that just kind of patterns into it. And it's, yeah, it's it's just breaks you down. It does. And it just it stays with you until you deal with it and actually accept who you are and be happy with yourself. And I'm, I'm not here to say, you know, like if you're overweight that, that that's okay. Because um, I know there's a big thing in this world around, you know, being overweight is, you know, that's okay. That is healthy. That is, you know, love yourself. You should love yourself. Absolutely love yourself. But it doesn't mean you can't be better in the way of health. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting around the societal constructs, but either way, doing the work is internal work. And until you do the internal work and you actually be the change you wish to see in the world, you can't look outside and point fingers at anybody else. Yeah. And also don't listen to everybody else pointing fingers because that is just, in particular for women, um, I believe that is one of the most horrendous things, trying to live up to these photoshopped magazine covers and uh, actors that have plastic surgery. Like, it's just unrealistic expectations. And for the most part, it's not healthy. Like it is just like that's not even real. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's all, you know, photoshopped and airbrushed, beauti- airbrushed and Highlight beautified. Real. Yeah, yeah. And it's just not achievable. So why try and attain something that is not achievable mm. at the cost of yourself? Yeah. And I, yeah, it is really impacting so many women in particular. Uh, yes, there's men too. That like we obviously have our own things for us. We need to. Um, be the provider and you know all these kind of um, expectations. expectations that we need to you know deliver upon um, yeah. six, six pack abs six pack abs uh, yeah yeah all that fun stuff um, alright there's one thing I want to continue to stress here is that it's really lonely doing this by yourself like mm. We work with with people one-on-one with the clinic, but we often recommend that they communicate with their spouse or they have someone that they work this through with because, as I mentioned, this work can be quite confronting. Um, And you just, you need people to say like, hey, can we do a pause here so we can work through this together? Or, you know, if you're struggling with someone, you've got someone to call who knows you're going through a program that helps to unpack all the stuff. So you actually have a bit of a backup plan there. And help you see things from a first principles approach, right? Like be that logic uh, when you're in a space to receive that, you know, because too often we just get caught up into these vicious cycles that we've talked about. It's just taking that step back and having that unbiased opinion or perspective is just so important. Which is hard to hear. It's really hard. So to hear. again, I want to stress that this is not a comfortable process. Uh, if you're if you're feeling discomfort, if you're feeling confronted, if you're feeling this desire to kind of escape from this whole process, that's absolutely normal. Because starting to shift the way that you've been doing it for decades does not feel good. And if you go into it expecting it to be smooth sailing and an easy process. You're going to fail because it's going to get hard. And when things get hard, you're going to stop. Mm. So accept that this is going to be a challenge and it's something you need to overcome. And just slowly chip away at it. Do the work, you know, as we always say. Pick one thing. Yes. Don't don't try and do this alongside a whole bunch of morning routines and habit um, building. You know, focus on this because this is mindset, right? This is the critical pillar that sets you up for everything else. Yeah. I do want to talk about raw material issues. 
So, okay, so we're talking, what, what we've talked about is fine and dandy. If you are in a mental space that you, you know, you have command of your logic brain or you, know, you, you aren't in a serious depression downward spiral because depression and anxiety is a downward spiral. When you start to kind of have these triggers and responses that create this negative outcome, it's hard to pull yourself back up. And, and so not only is there a behavioral or a habitual issue here that makes it worse, but it can also be a biochemical or a raw material issue. Mm. And we've alluded to this as we go around genetic elements as well as lifestyle elements that trigger genetic elements that impact depression and anxiety symptomology. And so the interesting part of that is, you know, if you find in your life that you've had lots of multiple inconsistent depressive or anxiety episodes, then this becomes even more important for you to understand like what is what is the core reason for you getting into those places. If you're in a depressed place, oftentimes you are thinking about the past. You're stuck somewhere back there. And so in this situation, if you can try to find enough kind of cognizant control to work through some of these exercises, it can actually help you understand what's what, what decisions have you made in the past or the trauma in the past that you keep swallowing or forgetting about or, again, having these coping mechanisms that exacerbate the problem but aren't the cause that if you can try to address those things that can help you understand the depression that you're in. And if you've done that and you're still not feeling better, then again, there may just be some raw material issues where the, the chemistry in your brain isn't in a place that can help you do that. So that's a different conversation too. But also if you're kind of anxious as well, you know, that's a sign for the future. So you're more not so worried about the past. It could be associated with the past from some trigger responses, but for the most part, you're living in the future before it's even happened. And this is where you're often catastrophizing. And this is where that fear setting practice is really powerful because many people will often find themselves in this place where they're just really anxious. And again, this can be done, this can be a raw material issue as well uh, because, you know, you're often your nervous system is out of sync or there's a raw material issue. You're hypervigilant too. Yeah, yeah hypervigilant, so, yeah. So the interesting part of anxiety is that is a coping mechanism. Hmm. Like being anxious and thinking about all these scenarios that could possibly go wrong is actually a self-protection protection mechanism because perhaps in the past you've had a variety of things gone wrong. You don't feel safe. You feel exposed. You feel vulnerable. And so the way your nervous system tries to protect you is to think about all the scenarios that could possibly go wrong in the future so you can almost like mentally prepare yourself for it. Even if 90% of the things never happen, Looking at anxiety as a coping mechanism that is just a mechanism that has underlying properties of why your body is and your mind is trying to protect itself. Doing this type of activity around check-in, understanding boundaries, understanding language, the inner narrative, the trauma, and looking at fear setting, all of these things can help you understand um, more about your coping mechanism, but more importantly, get to the underneath of the coping mechanism to understand what the core value, belief, whatever that might be, that's actually creating that outcome for you. And with anxiety specifically, it's a physiological response. That, uh, like, yes, we need to address the language and the the boundaries and 
kind of all the underpinning things of what's caused it, but first you need to take control of the physiological system. Um, so how, how do we control the physiology? And that's what we've talked about in the kind of stress episode. So going back to that stress episode, we've kind of talked about that agnosium around kind of strategies in which you can pull upon to downregulate that nervous system because you're essentially in a heightened state and we need to bring you back into that kind of parasympathetic or that rest and digest space. So it's breath work, it's having a wider gaze, using our peripheral, um, there's just endless techniques, meditation, you know, these are all ways in which we are free and we can just control our nervous system. Also in tailored when I'm working with clients in the movement space, like it's getting them in touch with how their body moves because Oh my God, like people do not know what's going on with their bodies. Like I will get a client to do a squat and what do you feel? They don't know. They don't know what they feel. They're so disconnected from how their bodies move and feel. They don't know what they feel. Oh, I'm tired. My body, my, my, my legs are a little bit tired. It's like, hey, no, let's, let's kind of be a bit more observant. Let's look in the mirror. What do we see? And then they're like, oh, but wow, um, my knee's caving in or my hips are going way out to the side. And they, they have to see that to feel that. And it's trying to get people more connected, not only with their emotional states, but their bodies as well. Because, you know, this is kind of leaning more into the further pillars are coming into kind of movement. But I just want to kind of talk about it here and allude to the kind of bio-curiosity. It's not just in the emotional uh, mindset space, but it's also how your body responds to your lifestyle, your nutrition, and your movement. All these things, I just see time and time again this disconnected nature. And I think it's the key thing we do at Tailored, in particular inside the hub um, and with the clients that we work with, is really getting them curious about how their body responds to certain things. We're just functional movement. So it's fascinating. We do a functional movement screen, which is essentially um, one of our specialists is able to look at, you know, basic movement, how your body is working biomechanically, whether or not it's symmetrical or not between each side, uh, and all the things that your body should be able to do from a, like a body in motion perspective. And so the, I haven't appreciated how the body moves. Uh, and equally where you can see blatant imbalance, which is creating injury. Uh, you know, we see it a lot with people who do high impact sports frequently or athletes that if their, if their body is asymmetrical when it comes to, you know, the strength and the mobility and, and the, the, the axis of, of movement that exacerbates injury. But even now, I'm, I'm not the body whisperer like you, you are, but even when we were walking, wherever it might be and I'm like oh my gosh their knee is rolling in like I bet you they have like hip problems or back problems and again I'm not even that specialist that's mm. that's your forte and so I can only imagine what it's like to be around just normal environments normal people and just seeing how much damage they're doing to their bodies long term by exacerbating the same broken movement patterns that that just are really not helping their entire physiology yeah, it's the same thing as a trigger and response, right? If you keep doing the same pattern, so for example, if you keep running on a dysfunction, uh, <laughs> you're just further ingraining these patterns into place and it is so hard to break and it just puts you further and further into the ground. So so it's actually quite a good analogy to think about it from, uh, well, it's a good analogy for me at least, so hopefully it uh, relates to others, but 
yeah, if you think about your triggers and um, your responses as, you know, a dysfunction in your body. And so if, for example, you're running and you've sprained your ankle so many times, you're not getting that knee over your toes when you're running. So your left side, your knee's going over your toes in a nice functional way. But on your right side, that knee is just so restricted because the ankle's so locked up in the front of that ankle that your stride is a lot shorter on that right side than it is on that left side. And you're going out for a run and you're taking, what, I don't know, 10,000 steps. What you, however far you're running, you know, then obviously the longer you go and the more frequently you do it, the more you're ingraining these patterns into place and you're creating this stride length difference just by an injury that wasn't re- rehabbed correctly. You know, it is, it's extremely toxic down the line. It's so much harder to unwind because now everybody knows how it likes to move because it likes to move like that because it's been trained like that. So it's much the same as how if you train your body to go to food or to go to alcohol or to run away and suppress um, emotions, it, it's trained. And your mind is trained. Your mind yeah. is trained. So you need to unravel all that training. And that takes time and it takes friction, struggle, and it's not easy. But once you do it, you're setting yourself up for the rest of your life. And I want to be clear, when I'm talking about imbalances and asymmetries, much like the mind and lifestyle and the very individual. So some imbalances and asymmetries can be natural for the individual, but for the most part, you know, like there's a lot of injuries that haven't been healed, which is not healthy and that needs to be sorted. Um, Yeah. A nice analogy to the neurons that fire together, wire together is the idea of a chain link fence, right? Um, the more that you just get these grooves that keep firing all the time, the stronger that chain becomes, the thicker each of the D-links or the, so the links become. And so you can imagine, try to cut a really thick link fence. You've got to have pretty hardcore tools, but equally it's going to be harder because those links are just so strong. And so the more you can just try to just do it gently, it's almost like there's a reverse osmosis process that as you continue to observe that, the chain link becomes smaller. So maybe those little links become weaker and it becomes easier and easier to break it. Or perhaps you're sawing it. Yeah. Because instead of like trying to clink like that, because it's not that quick (laughs) (laughs) with a bigger tool, uh, you're actually just sawing away that chain link slowly, uh, which allows that new path eventually. Mm. And... And you've alluded to it, but that also comes down to, as you mentioned, nutrition. So what you reach for under certain circumstances, whether you're upset, it comes down to kind of the tailored check-in when you say, well, well, I feel this way. My coping mechanism is currently this. Um, that, that 100% has relevancy there. But I do want to stress about this coping mechanism. When people say, I've got to quit drinking alcohol. Mm. That's often what they look at. Like, oh, I've just got to quit drinking alcohol. To them, that that is the problem. <laughs> but the the irony is, you're looking at the coping mechanism as a problem. So then you've got to dial it back. Okay, why do I drink? What what emotional value do I currently get from this? How is it currently serving me? Is this something that that I could do in another way or, you know, what is the, what is the root cause of why I'm going to it? And again, without being really curious and gentle and loving in the way that you, you know, just continually ask why, 
Why? Why alcohol? What, how does it make me feel? Why does it make me feel that way? And the best way to do that is think about the urge. When the urge hits, why now? What has just happened? Uh, get curious around the moment in time where the urge occurs for going to that fridge to grab that beer or whatever. Which is the be. response. Yeah. So again, yeah. trigger, response. Yeah. Let's tweeze that out. Yeah. And I think the key thing is like, you know, if you can kick alcohol, the health benefits profound firstly is a toxin to the body like don't get me wrong have alcohol like when you want to enjoy life um, but just understand it is hurting your body long term firstly if you're having it within three hours of sleep it's going to be impacting your sleep significantly yes your sleep architecture you'll fall asleep quicker so your sleep latency is quicker you go to sleep quicker but doesn't help your sleep architecture you're actually going to be disrupted throughout the night and get pulled out and awake um, throughout the night and not attain those that delta wave sleep that deep sleep and that REM as much as you should be so and then there's also no better way to really lose weight if you're carrying excess weight and you're drinking alcohol frequently to kind of suppress emotions like you'll lose weight so quickly yeah by just you've got to understand if you want to do this sustainably long term although it is a profound health benefits associated with it need to think about it in a sustainable way and real so, health yeah. is slow health therefore as you mentioned we need to take that step back we need to figure out okay i'm breaking up with a relationship it's just like an ex-partner your glass of wine or your beer is actually a relationship that you've yeah. had for sometimes many years decades yeah and we all know how easy it is to fall in the patterns of a previous relationship that you've broken up you get lonely and then all of a sudden you, you find them again yeah and the hard yeah. part about breaking up with alcohol is you go to the supermarket and it's right there mm. so if you think about an al alcohol or you know any kind of vice as being a relationship you've had with a friend or a lover depending on how, how good it makes you feel going cold turkey isn't always a really great way of doing it if you can go cold turkey you've got the type of personality and the resolve that that's worked in the past for you awesome do that but for the majority of people they need to understand that it's a relationship so you know it's like seeing your ex-girlfriend at the supermarket every single time you go to the supermarket and you just broke up with them a couple of days ago of course, you're going to kind of try to go back there. That's a comfort. That's your relationship. That's a known value. Uh, and so I think looking at that as, again, not only a coping mechanism, but also a relationship that you've had for a really long time. So honoring that relationship, understanding that it is a coping mechanism, and then again, backtracking as to what is the core reason why you go there. Yeah. Whether you go cold turkey or break up as a relationship, you need to be doing the work. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I think we're coming to the end of this episode, so we're going to ask what we always ask. So if there's one take-home message that, in your perspective, you feel is super important, what would you say that is? I'm going to have to go with language because your perception creates your reality, so your internal narrative more than anything. So really speaking to yourself in the way in which you want to be. So don't don't beat yourself up. Don't break yourself down continuously and criticize yourself. Instead, lift yourself up. Focus on how you can be the best person you can be and set in, and put yourself in that place already. So as if you were there, but associating that with the positive emotion as if you were there. So being grateful for being where you want to be essentially but as if you are there now mm, yeah I like that and I know we kind of only brushed over that but it's a really important 
caveat to all that we've spoken about today. Kind of like that where it's not exactly what we've spoken about, but real health is slow health, but real health also takes a village. Mm. Like it's hard to make change. And one thing that is an inadvertent outcome of you actually standing up for yourself, making some changes when people around you notice that you're changing, it becomes a threat. And oftentimes the people that you've been around are, are actually your, their relationship with you is related to drinking. Maybe you're trying to quit that. But then of course the thing in the way that you connect with your friend is through a Friday night drinks. And so if you're starting to make those changes in your, in your loved ones see that it can become a threat. And so it can actually sabotage your efforts because that's, you know, they're losing their drinking buddy or whatever it might be. And so I guess. And they will try to sabotage you as a result of that because yeah. they want you back. Yeah, that's their love. Like yeah. that, that's how they love you and that's how that relationship is formed. Um, or, you know, with your spouse is if you're suddenly creating a different way of arguing where it's like, whoa, you're doing something different, that creates threat because it's change. Our body is wired to assess threat. And so I guess coming back to the it takes a village to achieve real health is find someone that can create a safe space for you to grow. It could just be one person. Ideally, it's your spouse someone that you spend your most time with, but that's not always the way it works. It could just be a a friend or a a family member. Yeah. So, but find someone that you talk to on this journey and try, try to open yourself up to be vulnerable because that is the only way that you can really dig deep into the stuff is to actually find a safe place to be vulnerable, even if it's in with yourself. But to ultimately have someone that you can always pick up the phone or message if you need help. And if you don't have someone like this, give us a call, email us at Tailored Health. We may not be able to help you directly, but perhaps we'll be able to direct you to the right places where you can get resources or, you know, a a kind of group that can support you. But I think that, again, real health is slow health, but it also takes a village. Yeah, and if you are finding that spouse or friend or loved one, making sure it's a two-way street. I think we too often we want to talk about ourselves, but we've got to realize that if we want them to be truly invested, we need to be there working with them. And you often find by helping them, you help yourself. And because as humans, we want to support and um, give back. And it's a, it's amazing when you start to do that and actually be the teacher. That is when we learn topics the most. And that's why I enjoy doing this podcast because we get to, you know, talk to people and uh, much like when we do with our clients is it really ingrains these principles into place and there's no better way to learn a topic than articulating it to somebody Mm, no i agree well thank you for that i think we are closing up yep um but i appreciate you sitting down with me again it's not always fun trying to figure out the the order and the the full scope but we do hope the listeners pick up something really valuable from today's episode um if i've got any questions around uh you know sleep stress management um we've also talked about chronic fatigue in the prior episodes feel free to head there uh and then if you want to hear about our stories uh, episode one is talking about you luke and your kind of origin story and episode two is talking about mine and so that hopefully gives people a bit of a frame up of what our why is where the path to vibrant well-being shouldn't be confusing or lonely and of course the reason for this podcast which is what we wish informally what we wish our loved ones understood and did um and then more officially living better by design yeah and i think 
key thing is if you want to learn any more about these topics as well, first of all, feel free to reach out to us. But in the show notes, we'll also put links to many blog posts that kind of cover uh, fear setting, the tailored chicken, uh, and any other resources that we've talked about today. Yeah, cool. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As our podcast progresses, we'll keep digging deeper into powerful themes of health and wellness including client case studies and how we've used advanced science and not so common sense to help them live a life more extraordinary. If you feel this information has been helpful, please like, share, follow and subscribe to get notified of new episode drops and to support our mission to make the path to vibrant well-being less lonely and confusing.